This episode of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen is not intended as a substitute for seeing your own mental health provider. We are here to initiate conversations about sex. Let's keep the conversations going. You can find us on Twitter at TalkingSexPod or email us at TalkingSexPodcast at gmail.com. We also want to give special thanks to Nathan Diffie for our podcast cover art and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers. We are searchlights we can see in the dark. This week's spotlight, we're going to be talking about a couple different things. We are rockets pointed up at the stars. I'm looking forward to this discussion. We are billions of beautiful hearts. Hi, welcome to Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen. And this week's spotlight, we're going to be talking about a couple different things. So I'm here with Lynn. How are you today? I'm doing really well, and I'm looking forward to this discussion. Yeah, I'm excited. So, I mean, you had I had asked you, because I've been pretty busy this week, if there was anything you thought was worth mentioning that has been going on, and you brought up just kind of the ongoing allegations. So maybe you could speak a little to that. You know, I, I think we're seeing a snowballing effect, you know, across uh, di- many different groups regarding disclosure of sexual abuse. And there's been the specific uh, stories following uh, the Weinstein uh, disclosures and uh, how to address those. And every every day seems to bring a new story related to that. But uh, the other disclosures around uh, the actor, um, Spacey, and what's going on in terms of that area. But I think all of it points to how sexual matters can snowball and become even a movement, which is really what we're seeing here. And it reminds me of of different sexual movements we've seen. And we're just about at the 100-year anniversary of women getting the vote. Yeah, very uh, exciting. In America, and uh, very important for this country. But it reminds me of all the energy, all the effort, uh, I think of those suffragettes, uh, you know, chaining themselves to the gates outside the White House. I think of all of these different things. And uh, it has echoes in what we're really seeing today. A hundred years later, we're seeing all of these efforts made to really talk about sexual lives and particularly sexual abuse and how it interfaces with our sexual lives. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think it's become more of a subject that is talked about, particularly in light of this whole scandal that's breaking through Hollywood, because there are so many people who pay attention to what is going on in Hollywood. And so actually, CNN came out with a list of the most recent allegations. And so I'm going to go ahead and post that to our Facebook page. Again, the address is facebook.com slash talking sex pod. And so people can go there and take a look at the list. The list keeps growing. And I, I think it will just continue to grow, honestly. And that's how it, it often occurs with movements that they build on each other. It's really about a whole group of people connecting and working together. And I think as humans, we're really strongest when we can work cooperatively in an effort to make change. 
I think what's been interesting too, now that you're bringing that up, is actually Ben Affleck was one of the actors that first came out, one of the male actors who first came out against Harvey Weinstein or Weinstein. And then it came out that there was this old video that resurfaced of him sexually harassing an actress when he was younger. And what I thought was really interesting about it is that instead of taking the usual defensive response, which we've seen a lot from Hollywood, you know, that this unequivocally could not have happened, that, you know, some apology that isn't really fully formed. Ben Affleck, he he actually took responsibility and said, you know, I did act inappropriately then towards this person, and I sincerely apologize. And that was so refreshing. But that is part of change. He was able to admit that he had changed. He becomes a really important part of the movement, you know, to really put his voice forward in that way. That's very important, Jennifer. Well, I think one of the interesting things there, too, though, is like actually his his brother, Casey Affleck, won the Oscar. And that was after there were sexual harassment allegations that came out around him. So I think following Ben Affleck is going to be very interesting because in a way he's protecting his brother. He's protecting some of these people who do abuse. But then he's also trying to change and look at his own behavior. So I think that's an, that's going to be an interesting example of what a lot of males are going through, a lot of men are going through in terms of examining their own experience, but also those of the people around them. Yes. And we're really seeing many, many different male responses uh, around this. But today you wanted to focus uh, on this very important issue of sexual shame as it affects our culture, and particularly with the respect to women's sexuality, because all the shame that's associated with women's sexuality really affects how and when and why women can talk about their sexuality and most often not. (laughs) Most often not. And I I think that is a good segue. One more thing I want to add in before we get started is I actually just read it this morning. Danica Rowan, I don't know if that's the correct way to pronounce her last name, but she is now going to become the first openly transgender person to be elected to Virginia's state legislature. And that happened just yesterday. So I think it it builds on this idea that we're really seeing the tide shift. We're seeing a movement. And it's really exciting because I think that's a whole other direction that we're finally opening up to in terms of sexuality in our in our United States. And it's really a longstanding sexual movement that's been pushed forward by these recent incidents. So we thank everyone who's participating. Yeah, so let's get back to the concept of shame, though, particularly with women, you know, so it's something that has been coming up a lot in terms of the work that I'm doing with a lot of my clients. And so that's what got me really interested in looking on the internet to see what was out there and written about it. And that's when I stumbled upon this article. It's from 2013, actually November 9th. So, you know, just a couple years ago. And it, let me see, I can't tell if there are two writers. It looks like Tracy Clark Flory is the writer. And the article is called The Cost of Sexual Shame. Again, I'll post this up on our Facebook page. But I thought, 
It was very interesting because it talks a lot about the silencing of women. And that's what she's talking about, I think, a lot in terms of the cost of sexual shame. And I think just to work on the definitions around shame to introduce that, you know, shame is a concept in our psychological world that really has been there for a very long time. Eric Erickson, one of the founders, really, of the field of child and adolescent psychology, and really introduced ideas about shame and that it was really uh, an issue that young children grappled with. And it really refers to a feeling that pervades your entire body, that you feel entirely shamed and bad about something. And there can be specific things such as as conflicts or a specific issue that you might feel badly about, and that relates more to guilt-based issues. But shame is really a feeling that affects your psychological state, even your physical state, you're really your whole person. So when you talk about sexual shame in women, it affects women's bodies and it affects women's minds. And as you said, it affects our society. Yeah, well, it's really that whole picture. And I think highlighting the difference between guilt and shame is really important because they are experientially really different. Uh, one of the modern thinkers and researchers on shame is Brene Brown, and she spends a lot of time talking about how guilt can be helpful because it's recognizing maybe a characteristic or a certain behavior that you're doing that you want to change. And so it's helpful because you feel bad about it and you can motivate yourself to then make a better change. But shame is very different because it's taking it out on yourself and your whole identity. And so instead of seeing it as something that can be improved and altered, it's a sense of viewing yourself in a negative light that makes you pull away and that makes you feel that you have to hide yourself. And what we, I think, both notice or what I notice with my patients, particularly women who've suffered sexual abuse, is a pervasive sense of shame an inability really to talk about sexual matters, and even a disconnect from that point. They don't connect their shame with their inability to talk about their sexual matters or with the abuse. So you're really working with often women who are struggling and can't go forward really in terms of, of their path of understanding without therapy. Well, I think it's also one of the biggest things you address in therapy because it is a safe environment. You can really open yourself up. And Brene Brown talks a lot about this, but shame and that the path away from shame requires vulnerability. And you can only be vulnerable when you're in a safe space. And so I think therapy is very powerful in that way and getting people to be able to make those links that you're talking about, but then also to be able to actually talk about that feeling. Yeah. One of the things I liked about this article was the discussion about uh, men and partners of women, and they're both male and female partners, wanting women to talk about their sexuality and struggling to get past women's shame and those issues, really from both sides. Women feel shame, they can't talk about it, and partners want to hear more about it. And how do our partners out there of women really make and help women feel more secure um, so that they can talk about it, a safe place really to talk about our sexuality. Right. And what's so powerful is, so this article is actually about a an author, 
or no, a, she created a documentary. So her name is Melissa Tapper Goldman, and she created this documentary called Subjectified, Nine Women Talk About Sex, and it's actually currently available for free on Amazon Prime. So if you have Amazon Prime, or if you don't, you should definitely check it out. And it's really about the stigmatizing of women and their sexual experiences and and you know, the way in which that silence is encouraged. And so that is a good example, I think. What she found is that through creating this documentary, she got a lot of that feedback from men who wanted to hear more. And she got a lot of feedback about women wanting to hear more. And so I think it really shows that people are interested, but we have to figure out how to have these conversations and how to be able to talk about things that are often kept hidden and the pressures that keep them hidden. Right. And I think, you know, in the context, we're in the middle of a sexual movement about this. One of the things that I think helps uh, with respect to the Me Too movement, it really amplified and made a safe place for women to say that they had suffered this type of sexual harassment. And I think this is an example of the internet really connecting us and really allowing us, at least in that context, maybe anonymously, to really talk about these experiences. Then we can piggyback on that and talk with everybody else about them. So it's very, very important, the process we're seeing. It is, and having a space for that. So this woman actually, from the feedback that she was getting, she created a blog called Do Tell, where women can anonymously submit their experiences. And I think it's a great resource because women can go there and see what other women are experiencing. And I, the question I get a lot in my practice is clients asking me if their sexual lives are normal. And I think that's something that people are very preoccupied by. And one of the the most common questions, and uh, the uh, author really relates this, is that about orgasm, sexual orgasm, and is sexual orgasm, their sexual orgasm, normal? And many, many of my patients, it's the first time that they've ever talked about this in their lives. And, you know, they'll talk about just what they need to have an orgasm, how they think they're abnormal. Almost all women believe that they're abnormal in terms of their their pattern, a pattern of orgasmic response. And just to really help women to feel freer to talk about what excites them. It's really that in itself is exciting to participate in it. I think so. And I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. So the one that this article addresses is that a lot of women believe that you should be able to have an orgasm just by vaginal stimulation in vaginal penis stimulation. And the truth is for a lot of women, that isn't the case. You need something more. And I think when you're left feeling bad about it, a lot of women feel bad about themselves and that shame comes in and then they aren't talking about it. So they don't get the feedback that, no, that is really normal for a lot of people. Exactly. Um, you know, we have many dinosaurs in this area. And uh, Sigmund Freud wrote uh, about women's sexuality in what is now viewed as a negative and very biased way. And he uh, had, to some degree, determined a hierarchy of orgasm and what was involved with that. So saw it as that's the type, the normal type of orgasm. 
And uh, we now know from all of the research uh, that's been done in this area that most women require self-stimulation and, uh, you know, external uh, implements to masturbate with. And in fact, that should be encouraged really as part of adolescent girls' development to encourage their sexuality. Well, to learn what does turn you on, I think is important because how are you supposed to help your partner mm-hmm. with that? Because it really is a joint effort if you don't even know yourself. Exactly. Exactly. And so I think uh, for all the parents that are listening out there, that's an area to really read more about, become more informed about. And, you know, very early on, our bodies ourselves talked about looking at your bodies for women and examining them. But there's a whole lot more that's really involved in that, that I think young girls and women need to know about. And it's such an individual thing, you know, I, I don't think you can really read a textbook. I think you, <laughs> there are books that you can read that can help you with the discovery. Yeah. But there is no one textbook that is like, if you just do it this way, you know, then it then it'll be perfect because we're not yeah. robots. And I think for girls and women having an era, uh, uh, an atmosphere of feeling self-exploration, sexual exploration with others is okay. It can be exciting. It can really illuminate aspects of yourself. That's a very, very important part of life that most women really don't have. And I think when it does happen, it happens under a cloud of shame. And so it's really how can you have that experience without the shame? Because then it can be empowering. It can be freeing. And it can be a positive experience instead of something that maybe feels partly positive, but is tinged with this negativity. I hear from a lot of women that they felt really powerful when they discovered their own sexual response, but it was so colored by the environment that they grew in, whether it be family or friends who made them feel bad for it. And having others to talk with about it, to share it, to share ideas, you know, who knows what we're really going to find out about women's sexuality. I mean, we hear a lot in our offices, but it's more uh, about talking about it in the world too. And what that brings up for me too is the silencing. So in this article, what I love, so I'm going to direct quote this because I think it's so wonderful. She says, silence is not just an absence of input. It actually creates an environment of shame. And I think that's so much a part of the experience. And I think being able to recognize that and also being able to overcome it, because I don't think people talk about the experience necessarily using the word shame or ashamed, but they talk about feeling like they're they're breaking some privacy boundary. They talk about they use different words, I would say, but the experience is the same. And I, I think you've really described something very important is that for most young people who are sexually abused, girls and boys, disclosure does not happen really for a very long time. And that's very important to know that. And that silencing, that lack of disclosure for children and adolescents really amplifies the shame associated with sexual abuse. And it hangs over, you know, really our country and the world um, with the whole young generation not able to talk about a large part of their sad sexual experience. 
And I think part of it is we need to have these discussions about what part of your sexual life is private, but also what part is okay to share, or maybe okay is not the right word, but I think we have this pressure where the boundaries are set so rigidly that things that don't need to be private, people believe they have to be, so they hold it in maybe until they meet a therapist or a great friend or a great aunt or even some kind of uncle or father or, you know, just somebody who shows them that they can be open about this. And I think that's really what these conversations are about is, no, you can be open about this aspect of it. Maybe to just highlight uh, a bit with the clinical uh, story here, I've worked with a young woman during the past month, and she has been, you know, she had been sexually uh, molested um, 15 years ago by a teacher. And, um, you know, she herself did not come forward with the story until she had heard that another girl had had a similar experience. So that helped her to then come forward. She felt very badly that a girl had been sexually abused by the same teacher years later, but she was able to find her voice then. And part of what she talked about is she was fearful about being shamed as a slut by fellow students, by the teachers, by her parents, and by everyone. And she throughout these years of her life has inflicted that shame on herself and silencing on herself. And so to how to help this young woman see that she now is a heroine, you know, for coming forward and talking about it, but really to look at what she suffered. And I think that support network is so important. Who you tell, and if somebody is sharing some of these types of stories with you, how you respond is really important too. Because I've heard a lot of experiences where people right away launch into questions about like, well, what were you doing? Suggesting that someone was provoking something or they must have been provoking something. And that kind of thing shuts down the conversation. So it's really talking about, wow, you know, you're sharing this with me and, and being able to encourage that conversation. And I think if you hear this from a, a friend or acquaintance, I think what you can say is to thank them for sharing, to really resonate with some of the feelings that they're having. Um, the intrusive questions, I think, are very, very difficult, and they do shut people off because people berate themselves with a whole list of questions. So it's, it's a, that's an avenue in discussion that I think is better not taken. And I think actually it might be helpful for us to talk a little bit about that because a lot of people don't have those conversations. So they don't hear that before someone even does disclose, a lot of times they're going through their own personal litany of questions and hypothesizing about how other people are going to respond to these things and their own beliefs that they did cause these terrible, abusive, or harassment situations. This young woman that I mentioned earlier she was very concerned that she had seduced this teacher who was 30 years older than she was. And she was uh, really a, a young a teenager at that time. And she was very convinced that uh, she had played a role in the destruction of his family, a whole range of things that were not at all related to her. But she really berated herself and she 
greatly constricted her own sexual life, viewing herself as a slut in a, in a sense, slut shaming herself. Yeah. And so I wonder, I mean, what comes up for me as the psychologist in me is yes. that's a huge part yes. of the grooming process too, right? Is that the person who is abusing them is selling them this story. They are, and many, because uh, both of us have worked some with abusers. I work a lot with abusers too, individuals who abuse others sexually. And it's very important that they get treatment. But to uh, say that in the, the, the grooming process, often the responsibility and the blame is shifted to the young person. And uh, it's the young person who might be, let's say, 14, 15, 16, is convinced by the abusing adult that they are responsible. They, the child, are responsible for what is going on, that they're an adult, uh, which is a false portrayal. And the blame and responsibility is shifted, or it's disguised as, you are so sexy, you made me do this. So it shifted in that way. And uh, these are very, very important manipulations to be aware of. I think what's so powerful about it, too, and it's discussed in this article, is really how a lot of times the person who is abusing, obviously, they don't start out with abusing. They often start out as a source for the victim to talk about some of these things. So they feel a connection to this person because they're seen as a source of information, a source of openness. And I think that plays so much into how a lot of this happens. What they talk about in the article is that when you have only one other person to be your source of information or your social reinforcement, then it makes it so much more complicated because they're feeding you these ideas and you believe them. And you are, if we could change one thing, I think in the United States about the sexual culture, it would be to make it less restrictive. Oh my so God, yeah. There would be more opportunities for conversation and people would not hear one voice. You look at what could decrease rates of abuse in our country? And they're very high. And I believe strongly that if children were having more sexual conversations, not only with abusers, you know, and you make such an important point there, Jennifer. It's just something that I've seen as a pattern and then reading about it, I was like, oh yeah, that's so true. Yeah. So it's an important area for all of us as a society to really look at if we don't talk about sexual matters, especially for women, the vulnerability to abuse is very, very high. And that I think is a big part of the discussion about the cost of shame is that you're not having these discussions and you're having people feel terrible about themselves and people are believing things that are not true about themselves. And so I think that's really a big part of it is how do we open up these conversations so that one, people recognize that that would be a good norm to set is that having open conversations, we want that to be normalized in our culture instead of restricted. And I think that really is the path forward because it also shifts the entire social environment to one that makes it harder for the abuses, such as the ones going on in Hollywood, to not be covered up. And you think about with respect to the situation around Mr. Weinstein, 
if these uh, young female actresses had had other people to speak out with and a whole society that supported their disclosure, things might have been very different in this scenario that we're really hearing. So we're working together to establish a movement that would really allow for more open conversations. And that goes back to what started Me Too. Yeah. Well, again, a very interesting subject. And we're going to also, I think, address, continue to address shame because our listeners have have talked about wanting to hear more psychological underpinnings really related to these news-based events. So I think it's very important. All right. Well, thank you so much, Lynn. This has been a great discussion. 